Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Shlom. Anyone that knows me well knows that my dogs are a central part of my life. It's a choice I've made to make them my beloved family members and the friends who actually do know me better than most any human being does. But I often find myself wondering, what do they actually think? Do they love me as I love them, or is it different? Turns out scientists since the time of Charles Darwin have been wondering the same things. Scientific research over the years has taken us to a much better understanding of the species that was always called man's best friend when I was a child. To help us further our understanding of our canine companions, our guest is Jules Howard. Howard is the author of the new book, Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans. He joins us from his home in England. Jules Howard, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. Well, um, to be quite honest, right up front, my entire life, I have been in the presence of dogs, except for, I think, a brief period in my 20s when I didn't have dogs. So dogs have always been big part of my life. So this was this was a book I was very interested in reading and you didn't disappoint. Um, what I'd like to know is what what made you decide you wanted to write about our scientific point of view of dogs through through time? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think for a long time, like you, I've always had dogs in my life, always wanted to write about dogs. But the truth is uh, there are some fantastic books about dog cognition and what it's like to kind of be like a feel like a dog and some absolutely brilliant authors, uh, Zazie Todd and Alexandra Horowitz and, you know, just brilliant scientists um, who have spent their lives looking at th that subject and doing it much better, I feel or I felt than I ever could. Um, but uh, writing for The Guardian, as I have done for, you know, for like more than 10 years on all sorts of topics, um, I hit upon a few times um, the kind of history of dogs and their use in science and their kind of story, their changing story of how they're influencing what we know about animal minds. Um, and it was upon hitting upon those stories that I kind of thought, actually, there is a, an untold story of the science of dogs. And it's about how far we've come and, you know, where we might go next. So that was the thing that got me. And I saw my opportunity and I was like, right, we're going to do this. Yeah. And it's an interesting way of looking at our understanding of dogs, because you kind of trace it through time and how we've gone about trying to understand dogs and, and how far we've come in terms of being humane to dogs. Because uh, as you point out in some of the earlier chapters of the book, that has not always been the case. Yeah. And what surprised me was, um, I suppose I had this general view of, you know, how humane we are as scientists has just been a general, you know, um, line, if you like, you know, we're getting more and more humane as the years go past. But actually, the story isn't like that, as, you, as you've seen, you know, um, in the middle of the uh, 19th century, actually, people kind of did believe in uh, humane treatment of dogs mm -hmm. and particularly after Darwin and people started looking at dogs as wow you know we share distant ancestors and thinking of ourselves on a mammal spectrum I think people were you know interested in more um, you know scientists would use including Darwin would use their dogs in a kind of anecdotal way to test scientific ideas so we actually came from kind of a nice place um, but then, of course, with the massive strides being made in the Industrial Revolution and massive strides being made in how we use laboratories to do long term tests and long term studies. Um, and uh, I think it, it, science took a sort of dark turn, to be honest, um, in, in that period at the end of the 19th century. 
Um, and it took about 40 years for, for that wrong turn, if you like, to be righted and for us to start um, slowly considering dogs a bit like Darwin did as, as a way we can test out ideas and um, a way for us to explore, I suppose, um, by extension, the minds of other mammals, you know, with using these animals that we, you know, we're sharing houses with often. So it's, it was, it's been a, it's been a convoluted tale. Um, and, and again, that was one of the things I was kind of drawn to, to be honest. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the very roots of this whole adventure. Um, because it, it's so interesting to think about where dogs come from in that mammalian evolutionary spectrum that you described because they you know we know that they came from wolves and that they've been a part of our lives for a very very long time in fact there's um and we can talk about it more later but there was a fascinating part in near the end of the book about a burial site i don't remember exactly how old it was but it was, it was thousands of years old as i recall with a, a human buried with a, a pet dog and you point out in there that the the really interesting part of that is that dog had had been ill yeah, and the 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 dog had um, got canine distemper. So scientists looking at the yeah the teeth of this um, this this dog um, could tell you know that that it, it definitely was displaying symptoms, and it would have died within weeks uh, you know if, if if it hadn't been treated and looked after. So that really first first the first time we got really excellent evidence that this was a strange relationship you know this is different to the, the human relationship with livestock this is a uh, this is something deeper and yeah that's the uh, goes back um uh you know it's almost as far as ten thousand years you know so to have that relationship and to be able to prove that relationship is what sets dogs apart from from other animals including cats actually um you know that's the first you know, really strong evidence we have for this this deep bond. Annoyingly, I mean, I, I mean, you must have thought this as a dog lover as well. I, I, if there's one thing I wish we could know, it's what that first meeting or what those first meetings were like. Um, you know, between wolf, wolf and yeah, human. You know, whether or not. I mean, there's two schools of thought, isn't there? One is that um, you know it was children and kind of pet keeping, if you like, and the interest in taking wild animals and raising them as pets, which some um, indigenous cultures still do today, of course. Or it was uh, a much more gradual process um, whereby dogs are, you know, well, wolves, I should say, populations of wolves are finding loads of treats and rewards um, in terms of human waste and and human, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. And piles of junk basically and dogs are making well early wolves are making a living off that and that's what's drawing them in so it's frustrating to me you know, and so many other scientists i think that we still have to imagine rather than depend on evidence you know how that came about so who knows in five or ten years we might have a better understanding of that but there's something kind of beautiful in that don't you think that we'll never we may never know what they i was just going to say i like the fact that it's a mystery Mm. Um, because it really is a mystery that, uh, and the more, you know, after reading this book and some others uh, in the same vein, the more I am just mystified by dogs in general and how they are our just best companions uh, as animals. They're just amazing how they can read human moods and what we're going to do that they, they observe us way better than we do. Yeah, and you realise I mean, there's so many similarities between um, dogs and humans. And I, I recently was spent a bit of time working on um, human facial muscles, 
And, uh, you know, the fact that we have all of these sort of flags, I suppose, that we can, you know, every day we use in all sorts of ways. You know, our eyebrows move really distinctive way. The very fact we've got hair on our, you know, ribbon of hair on our, <laughs> the top of our, above our eyes. It's kind of weird, but, you know, we, the reason for that is because, you know, we have really expressive animals. And, you know, dogs are the same. They have the, they have their, obviously they can give us that lovely puppy dog eye look, which, you know, involves a really um, highly evolved muscle that wolves haven't developed, but in dogs, it's like super strong. And, um, <sighs> you know, we can read one another's faces because we both evolved in, you know, very social um, societies, I suppose. And that separates dogs out from, from cats that are obviously clearly uh, evolutionarily live a more solitary life. So I sort of see, um, you know, we smile, they wag their tail, you know, I see, I see a real similarity there. Perhaps that's no coincidence. You know, on another planet, if we replayed the whole of life on Earth, the, the experiment all over again, it would probably be another highly social um, organism that, um, you know, that kind of made friends with the, the most intelligent animals on the planet kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I, there are similarities there, definitely. And we see them every day. You know, they play out in our kitchens and particularly at dog parks. I'm a big fan of dog parks, you know, just sitting and watching dogs running around and interacting. I've, I just love that so much. It is fascinating to watch mm -hmm. them interact with their owners and each other at a dog park. And there's something uh, I really hadn't thought much about, I was vaguely aware of, but you you talk a bit about it in the near the beginning of the book. And those are street dogs. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's the other thing. I think we can, it's always good to remind ourselves that um, as a close approximation, you know, the standard dog on planet Earth is, you know, a village dog or a street dog. So a dog that has certainly has routines, but its routines involve visiting lots of different human spaces um, and, you know, finding food sources or approaching the right people, so to speak, and making a really good living off that. I say I say good living, you know, and obviously it can be a hard life and um, particularly with diseases, you know, street dogs or village dogs. Um, you know, are often various states of suffering, but you know, as a as a I suppose as an ecosystem, you know, humans have provided a, a one that works for dogs. So nine out of ten dogs on planet Earth are in that category, and really, we are um, you know the dogs that share our houses are uh, massively the minority. You know, the, these are established breeds in many cases, and they're living a very different kind of life. But in some in some ways, it's still one that's dependent upon reading humans. You know, have you, have you, I'm assuming at some point you've come across sort of, you know, those kinds of street dogs. And the, you don't see them very often where I, I live. I'm, you know, I'm aware, but mostly we don't have feral dogs or street dogs in, in, in California, in many places that I know. Of. Um, a lot of dogs have, have attached themselves to the homeless, you know, people who don't have a home that there's dogs that they they care for and they care for each other so they live kind of almost like a symbiotic street existence that's you know a whole nother can of worms there mm. but um you know what i what i was thinking of while you were talking about street dogs is that in in california in particular coyotes are starting to fill that niche yeah as soon as you mentioned california i thought exactly the same thing and in theory they're they're i mean Coyotes are the, the pack size, I think, is a bit smaller than wolves. Is that right? I'm pretty sure that's right. In oh, yeah. terms of yeah. and the, the, the social, um, the social dynamics are uh, less, 
what's the word less diverse i suppose you could say than in wolves but in theory you know it may well be that there will be other canids other members of the dog tribe that do get socialized or they do change their natural behaviors because of us i was amazed there's a there's a really nice study um at university of scotland where they've got loads of fox skulls red fox skulls and um, these have been collected uh, between 1850 and 1900. And by looking at the general shape of those skulls and comparing them to the red foxes that roam um, Edinburgh today, you can see clear differences. You know, the, the, the snout size is um, on average, just kind of, I think it's like a centimeter shorter and the muscles for working, you know, bones, if you like, they're not as strong in the modern day counterparts in Edinburgh because, you know, there's more food available. So there's no point in these dogs investing lots in muscle. You know, they just don't need it because there's, you know, easier food sources on the streets of Edinburgh today than there were 150 years ago. So it's really interesting that we, you know, we are, we go about our daily lives. It's so weird, isn't it? Just thinking of these animals adapting and evolving kind of around us. <clears throat> and I, I, I guess coyotes are in the same, uh, in the same ballpark there. Yes, they, they're ubiquitous in, in California, and they thrive in the most urban areas in Los Angeles, uh, where, you know, there's that interface between the wildlands not far away from these very densely populated areas. And they, they come down into the human neighborhoods and forage at night and, and thrive, thrive, you know, it's just amazing. Uh, Can I just ask you a question? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, certainly. How do your dogs like respond when if they see a coyote? So let's say you've got a dog on the lead. You know, mm -hmm. is there much interest between the we two species? That you, I've never seen a coyote with my dogs on leash. They, they, they only come out around here. They come out late at night, and you can hear them yipping. And uh, and I'm not sure of this, but a lot of us feel like they're trying to call little doggies out to come to okay. attack them and get them. <laughs> wow. um, we, I don't know that that's true. Uh, that's kind of the local lore though, but you just hear them at night. That kind of thing. Uh, right. Like three, four in the morning. My dogs have learned to just ignore it. They have a fenced yard, uh, but you never, you, you would rarely ever see a coyote out walking a dog, even where I live, which is a very rural area. And what about smells? I mean, we have, uh, I was, speaking to someone the other day about this like we we need some some better science i think in what dogs roll in you know the th the kinds of things oh, they yeah. roll in and one of the you know the commonalities you know for for um for many dogs around here you know in the uk is you know fox droppings fox poo um you know dogs seem to really get um, they like that yeah they like it they like it yeah. they love rolling and they just give it a really good a really good bath um, although having said that, our dog doesn't seem to do that. But either way, yeah, it's certainly an interesting mm -hmm. spell. And I wonder whether or not I'd love to know, you know, whether or whether or not, you know, there is some some sort of not understanding in a in a conscious way. I'm not saying they're like, oh, this is a fox or this is a distant ancestor of mine. But, you know, I wonder if there is a general mammal family smell and there is some sort of recognition there. And if so, whether you, you might get that with coyotes as well, it'd be it'd be fascinating to know, wouldn't it? Well, especially since they're canids, you know, there, there, mm. there must be something there. And you, you mentioned the, the rolling and stuff, you know, every dog owner's, it's one of your worst nightmares really is, you know, your dog finds something dead. Like my, my little terrier, my little rat terrier, he, he, he likes to find dead frogs out in the yard. <laughs> he'll find a dead frog and they get all stinky and he'll roll in it and then come in the house and then you're just, oh my, and then it's like, you know, I know it's like, okay, bath time. Yeah. Oh, I know that feeling so well. We, I, about four days ago, we went to the um, to the seaside, to the beach, 
and you can just tell within five minutes of being there, Oz, our dog, was just you could just he, he, he just get they get a sort of um a sort of face on, don't they? And sort of pointing into the wind, and he's like, okay, that's it, I'm going for it. And obviously, he found a, a really large adult de- uh, dead seal, and he was really sort of rubbing his body all over it, frottage all over the place, and uh, you know. I, bringing that smell home that's what it's about for him you know that's his pocket yeah. <laughs> rubbing around putting this smell in his pocket and then off he comes <laughs> we're going to take a short break but stay with us when we come back we'll continue our conversation with jules howard as we talk about his new book wonder dog the science of dogs and their unique friendship with humans i'm dave Schlom, and you are listening to blue dot And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with Jules Howard, author of the new book about canine science, Wonder Dog. In in reading your book, there are a lot of very familiar names in there. You mentioned Charles Darwin, and Dickens is in there too. Uh, and, and one of the most interesting characters, because we all know, you know, when you hear the name Pavlov, you think of dog, <laughs> Pavlov's dog. Um, you really go into some detail about his work. Could you just give us a thumbnail sketch of what kind of work he did and how he went about it? Yeah, he, he, much more interesting character than I had ever uh, imagined before researching. Uh, you know, in, in the UK, we, we are taught, I was taught, um, you know, that this was a uh, a, a distinguished gentleman with some dogs and a deli- little bell and rings the bell and the dogs are you know salivating and it's all very uh, genial um but actually the reality is uh, i was really shocked by so um uh, pavlov's interest was in gastric uh, juices so in uh, mostly enzymes you know produced in um, salivation um and obsessed with sort of rigor scientific rigor and you know establishing laboratories that could do long-term studies and unfortunately that involved keeping a a single dog at a time or multiple dogs alive for as long as possible so you could get a long-term study based on one um, individual and it was collecting these um, digestive juices um, that was of most importance to Pavlov so devised I'm not going to go into too much detail if that's okay but but please don't please please don't really a really you know as gruesome as it gets i would say in terms of how to collect um saliva and it was whilst doing that um that he obviously noticed um that the saliva was starting to be produced without him even getting the food out it was when the technicians were entering the the, the laboratory and there was never a bell you know bell is mistranslation we think of buzzer but also you know pavlov was using electric shocks and metronomes and all other things to um condition his dogs to produce their saliva but i think the most shocking thing was that he was also um, selling uh, dog saliva. So these gastric juices, he would bottle them up, 3,000 bottles a year, and he was selling the dog's gastric juices to Russian high society as a cure for dyspepsia. And the the profit he was making, I think a third of his research costs were covered by selling um, dog saliva. So again, I don't remember hearing about that when I was learning psychology. Uh, I definitely don't remember that. So uh, again, I think it's very interesting to me, the stories that we tell in science, and you must come across this all the time. You know, I, I had used to think, I mean, science is clearly about rigor and reproducing results and methodologies. And, you know, the difference between 
uh, true and false, I suppose, in a really fundamental way. But I was amazed at actually, there's lots of areas of science. The way we talk about science is is linked to culture. So, you know, the 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 stories we were told about Pavlov, the stories I was told about Pavlov were wrong. They had been modified for reasons unknown. Um, well, and, and, and if you think about it, there, part of that might be just common sense. A lot of people, when they're first exposed to Pavlov, is through like a, a school biology book. Mm. And you, you're not necessarily going to want to go into gruesome details, you know, for school children about Pavlov's research methods. Well, that is a fair point. I, I do agree with that. I can see that. Okay, let's talk a bit about and I'm, I'm going to butcher this name because I don't really know how to pronounce it. Lizzie Lind of Higby, is that is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. And the Brown Dog Affair, that she could because she is kind of a central to this whole issue of, you know, the experimentation. Tell us just a little bit about her story. So the late 19th century was incredibly turbulent time um, in in most Western cities because, of course, in the rise in industry uh, was freeing up the middle classes in terms of time. Um, and, you know, women were seeking um, status and they were campaigning and fighting and the suffragettes and these movements were starting to appear kind of out of nowhere, really. And that linked with the rise in dogs and the fact that street dogs, of course, were being removed in their millions because of uh, rabies, which was kind of running rampant um, in Western cities at the time. These This kind of collage of different things going on, these different social um, behaviours changing, saw the rise of some really impressive characters. And Lizzie is the ultimate character. You know, she fought um, her own legal cases because she uh, wasn't allowed to be a lawyer because in, in UK law, she wasn't even... She couldn't represent herself because she wasn't even deemed a human because she was a because she was a woman and she represented herself in court. Three hundred thousand words. Um, she spoke in court. She interviewed something like forty five witnesses, um, and you know, it was a class act. And the reason uh, her sort of central reason for being, I suppose, was to infiltrate. Um, medical schools at the time which didn't allow women in and find out what they were doing to dogs because nobody knew it was completely behind closed doors and Queen Victoria had said you know she wanted some rules about the way dogs were used in laboratories but you know no one could monitor what was going on so she cleverly crafted a plan to um, to get to see what was going on um, joined a kind of a women's college and got to see some demonstrations done by men at the time and recorded a secret diary which obviously was published and it was a, a mass as a real sensation um in literary circles and people really really like this book because of course at the time they just loved dogs and crufts was starting and dog breeds were multiplying in their hundreds by that point so there was a real um massive amount of uh new dog fans i suppose and lizzie was their voice and um the tension she was stirring up. This was kind of the first social movement of its kind in the UK, at yeah. least. Yeah. The tension she stirred up, you know, really ignited um, scientists and um, anti-vivisectionists were fighting in the streets. And the situation was just so, um, so intense that actually Britain lost its uh its crown at the time for doing animal cognition. I mean, it was too contentious a subject. Scientists didn't want to go near it. So the, you know, the honour kind of moved um, via Pavlov to the US as a result of that. So you guys over there became a real centre for animal cognition research, basically because I would say 
singly because of Lizzie's influence on science at the turn of the um, 20th century. So it's really interesting. You see these little, from town to town, country to country, you see these little seeds of scientific intellect kind of moving around. And again, that's not something I've respected enough in uh, the previous science books I've written or, or others that I've read. I haven't seen that in other books, science books that I've I've read, you know, this movement of ideas across continents. It's absolutely fascinating. It is because you, you somebody might go to a conference or something and then they're exposed to somebody else's ideas and then these ideas shift and move, you know, globally. It's interesting. And you know, when you mentioned her um, and, you know, really that is a social justice movement um, because dogs are social animals. And uh, so it's one of the first examples of that. All right. Well, let's talk about, uh, Back to wolves, because there was a very interesting thing, and I hadn't really thought about it. Wolvish behaviors that dogs have still, like tail wagging. Tail wagging is such, the dogs' tails are such an interesting way of them communicating with each other and with us and about their moods. Absolutely. I'm going to tell you a very uh, slightly weird place I'm at at the moment. About um, six or seven days ago, we, uh, our dog, Ozzy, uh, who's a lurcher, um, a kind of a whippet cross, um, he was running after a football and slid into a stick. And unfortunately, the stick got sort of stuck momentarily in him. And he had an operation, very big scar. Um, but he's had to have his, the stick went in near his uh, bottom, near his backside. Uh-oh. And he's, he's been shaved right down. Um, he's got his little bony bottom there, but I, I must say, apart from the sadness, although he's dealing with it absolutely brilliantly, apart from the sadness, it is really interesting because he's such a skinny dog. You can see the actual tendons pulling his tail mm. and you realize that this very simple mechanism of just, you know, a couple of tendons, one pulls, you know, the tail wags one way, the other pulls the tail wags the other way. And, um, it is such a simple flag a very simple system for communication and dogs achieve so much with just those simple tendons it's just fantastic so you know a high you know a high wag is a kind of like a alert kind of like are we okay here and then a really you know crazy you know whipping across the face you know labrador sort of wag is a kind of like you know i'm ecstatic but you know dogs also differ in their the direction of their wag so left-handed wagging is a thing uh, and it indicates i think that's right indicates a uh, sort of positive vibes and then a right-handed wag is slightly more um uh agitated you know, agitated yeah mm-hmm. exactly or suspicious yeah. mm-hmm. um so again you know the the speed of the wag the direction the frequency all these things are just communicating you know in their in their in their way these are these are words they're yeah you know, ex- true expressions it's absolutely fascinating well, I, I, I noticed just myself, I, I'm, I've been with my, my personal dogs for quite a while now. They're older dogs. And I, you know, I can read them really well just by how they're wagging their tails and what they're trying to get across to me. You know, there's certain wags that are just kind of, when they walk up to me, it's kind of a, hey, how you doing, wag? <laughs> are, they're checking me out. Are you, are you in a good mood? Are you okay? You know, it's like, do I really, do, do you want to play or should I just go lay down? You know, it's like, I can tell that wag is the, what's going on wag. Yeah. So they can communicate their moods and you know, what, what they're picking up from me. And I can see it in their different kinds of wags. And I have three different dogs and they all kind of have their own little, little trademark wags. And I know my little one, her thing is the tail goes tucking up between her legs. If she's, you know, freaked out about something at all or 
you know, a lot, a lot of times she'll do that when she's eating. She'll tuck, tuck her tail in. And then they my big German shepherd, her, her tail likes to swish slowly back and forth while she eats. Like, oh, this is good. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, they're reading us in the same way. Of course, we don't have tails to wag, but, you know, our body shapes and our hand gestures, um, you know, and our, the, our facial expressions, you know, that I love the fact sure. that you know, we can read them in that obvious way and they can read us in this really super subtle way. It's, 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 it's fascinating. It really is. And of, of course, one of the big names uh, in cognition science is B.F. Skinner. Uh, and you have some really interesting things to say about him and this whole notion of you know, trying to understand the brain and, and this idea that oh, it's kind of like a machine and we can understand it, uh, that, that kind of reductionist point of view. Uh, where does he fit in with dog understanding? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned about... Um earlier on about you know just sitting in a, a, a in a lecture theater and hearing someone speak and then taking that idea back to your own scientific institution that's basically what happened with Skinner you know he actually had a chance to hear Pavlov got his autograph went back and was really taken with with this idea of um conditioning really so you know the the dogs were conditioned by um the the noise uh, to start salivating experience if you like you know we talk about nature and nurture you know in the, in the dog's case it was nurture Pavlov's dogs were you know very much nurture that caused that behavior so um Skinner kind of took it to the next level really and and uh kind of ended up just thinking okay well if everything's about um experience and about organisms conditioning themselves based on what happened before then essentially there's no such thing as as free will so that's as far as he got radical behaviorism it's called and his ideas at the time in psychology they kind of leached into biology and that was the, the that was the kind of thinking it had to be that way that's what you know these really amazing studies done in laboratories were telling us wow this is it you know it's all about conditioning and slowly but surely from about the 50s onwards there was a kind of pushback I suppose and people were starting to look at some animal behaviors and thinking well that's not conditioned that's not kind of learned you know if you think about I love it when dogs do that little uh, just before they go to sleep sometimes they will do that little spin you know they do mm -hmm. a little, the, the three they, the three turns mm, the three turns or another example like this makes it still makes me laugh now but when Oz our dog first did a uh, you know, first cocked his leg to do a wee. Mm -hmm. You can tell he was looking at his own leg, going like, "What am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing that?" So you know, those those are clearly um, genetic traits, if you like. They, they go yeah. much deeper, I suppose. So those early cognitive scientists were saying, "Look, there's something deeper going on here." And you know, Skinner's ideas, bit by bit, were challenged. And and in fact, by his some of his own students actually came up with some really interesting stuff to to, to combat Skinner's ideas. And they eventually kind of fell apart due to a 10-year study took place in the 1960s based on looking at dogs, raising dogs, looking at their life experiences, then raising those dogs' puppies and looking at their life experiences and changing variables in a dog's life to see the impact it has on the adult dog that comes from that. So taking a puppy, perhaps in some cases, not giving the puppy any access to humans, seeing what happens to the puppy. And that science showed quite clearly that, you know, animals were affected both by nature and nurture. So genetics, but also experience. And that study, as I said, a 10-year study, absolutely amazing study. Um, that study really did change a lot because scientists started realizing, oh, great, okay, that's a bad thing. Then if you treat dogs badly in a laboratory, um, then you know that's going to be emotionally damaging for the rest of their lives. So that made using dogs in research much harder. And 
essentially put dogs out in the cold when i when I started zoology, we, no one worked with dogs. Like it was just like, why would you work with dogs? They've been corrupted by humankind. You know, people used to call them dumb wolves, and uh, dogs kind of ended up out in the cold um, uh, in a sort of research sense. And it was only in about the two thousands when they started to regain their place, I suppose, in the in the natural sciences. Well, I would argue that that perhaps was a good thing that mm-hmm. we were not ready to to do this with them. On, on the correct terms until that that happened that revolution happens that's kind of the last part of your book yeah I, I I definitely agree with that I definitely agree with that and so in that that last um few uh chapters the the theme is you know scientists realize that dogs unlike chimpanzees and gorillas which often have to be um either rescue chimpanzees or gorillas or um, captive chimpanzees or gorillas you know studying studying those animals in the wild is obviously really difficult and so you know i love the fact that scientists started thinking well hang on a sec i've I've got an animal at home (laughs) that exhibits some quite interesting behaviors i wonder if that animal could be used in a research sense and to get the sample size up you know some of these scientists are thinking well i've got 20 friends with dogs why don't we just group together and do some tests on our dogs and you know give them loads of rewards and hugs afterwards and get some really good data and so this rise in so-called family dog science. The family dog project. Could you tell mm. us about that a bit? Yeah, well, that was one of the first, you know, in, in, uh, um, in Hungary, um, involved a, a, a scientist who studied fish. This is, a, again, like very early 90s, had a big laboratory full of fish, you know, doing research on the genetics of um, fish. And it was on a mountain walk. This is one of the, my favorite wonder dogs in the book. He's on a mountain walk um, and comes across a um, stray dog near a cafe. And the dog just loves this guy, um, the scientist called Sanyi. And the dog follows um, Sanyi around the whole walk, miles and miles and miles and miles. And eventually Sanyi thinks, I, I, I can't leave this dog now. It's followed me for miles. It's completely lost. So he takes uh, the dog home. And this dog, the questions it elicited in um, in Sanya's mind, he kept a diary of all of the strange and amazing things this dog did. And eventually he went back into his research facility full of fish and said, do you know what? We need to, we need to put these fish somewhere else and we need to redo um, the behavioral science we do here and we're going to use family dogs. So that's the first proper use of family, you know, this term family dogs. Um, and within years, that research facility, I mean, it's still pumping out loads of research now, but, you know, within a few years, it was finding, uh, you know, they were one of the first um, institutions to discover that dogs could follow pointing gestures, which for ages was was thought impossible by. Well, that's one of my favorite stories in your book is, uh, I think it was Brian Hare, where, yeah. where he's in a lecture and he's he just pipes up, says, my dog does that. And then the, the I forget who the person is you you remember um, says well oh yeah prove it yeah and it's great I mean I can remember that time as well when that was considered a very human uh, thing you know a definition of human kind you know human behaviors we understand gestures and exactly as you say Brian Hare's in the audience as a student pops up uh, my dog can do that and uh, Tomasello the 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 tutor at the time um, big name in evolutionary science was kind of like, okay, we'll prove it. And I just love that story because, you know, that's what every good teacher should say, you know, no slam downs, just say, okay, this is science, go and prove it. So Brian Hare got some video of his dog, um, Oreo, 
uh, fetching tennis balls using pointing gestures uh, showed it to Tomasello and very graciously he said okay I've been proven wrong let's do some more great science on this and they published at the same time actually as the family dog project they published this research that you know goodness me dogs not all dogs but you know dogs are, do seem able to follow um, you know this this simple human pointing finger this just simple finger they can apparently seemingly you know understand the concept that it is you know the finger is like an invisible arrow <laughs> it's like a laser beam it's really it's really amazing but i must say not all dogs are equally uh you know good at, at, at following points i test my dog all the time and i must say he's two and he he does really seem to struggle with it but you know we'll get there but either way you know again it goes back to what we're saying here you know dogs we thought they were dumb wolves and in fact no they're animals that can really um, push science forward and challenge this idea that humans are on a pedestal and completely you know different to other mammals so yeah that's that's um one of many wonder dogs in the book actually you know owned well i say owned companion dogs that were capable of putting questions if you like into the minds of scientists and driving the whole of the cognitive sciences forward if you're just joining us, our guest is British author Jules Howard, and we're talking about his new book about the science behind our relationship with dogs titled Wonder Dog. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with the author of the new book, Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans, Jules Howard. There was a, a little story you tell about your dog, Biff, right? Your dog was Biff. Mm -hmm. um, what I thought was like just so perfect is that he, he would bark at bicycles. And it was mm -hmm. like, you know, you, you, you laid it out quite simply. It's like this strange contraption comes at me. I bark at it. It goes away. So it's like mission accomplished it yeah and, like... the, and, and the more it happens the more you know the dog is kind of super conditioned to be like well this technique is it's unbreakable <laughs> but i guess i mean uh our dog at the moment he's quite a barker when we have visitors come to the door people dropping off parcels and things like that and i assume we we see these behaviors i think in all of our dogs all the time you know he's like wow i bark a bit and the noise just goes away yeah you know, like back to pointing, I have a, a very, you know, very sweet, reasonably smart German Shepherd. And uh, she sometimes struggles jumping in the back of my Subaru because she she gets too close. You know, she has to get a little bit of a running start and then it's fine. <laughs> and yesterday, you know, the, 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 the trunk opened and she was standing right there. And I just looked at her and I said, not going to work. And I just pointed, you know, go, go back. And I didn't say anything. I just pointed and she was like, oh, right. She, she walked away and then ran wow. and jumped in. It's like, you know, and I've probably done that before where I've just, you know, Ellie get over there and pointed without thinking about it. Yes. She's obviously reading my gestures and, you know, I'm, I'm not consciously training her that way. It's just kind of like just a just communication happening between dog, dog and dog lover. Yeah. I, I love that. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. yeah really, really super interesting. I've got into a bit of a loop with Oz with, with getting into the boot of our car where to at first he, he was quite nervous of doing that because he just wanted to be in the back with his brother and his sister. 
Um, but um, he, so, you know, I'll give him a biscuit. And now he won't get in the boot. It's like a nego- I have to negotiate with him, you know. And I have the biscuit. Yeah, he'll sort of look at me and be like, well, what's it worth? You know, is it going to be a little bit kibble or are we talking a full biscuit here? So we've got into this sort of negotiation loop. <laughs> but I don't mind. I, I you know, I, what whatever makes us both happy works for me. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting thing that you touch on that I've always found very interesting uh, is this idea that there are alpha dogs that, you know, the leader of the pack and the whole Caesar Milan type mm. of training method where, you know, you're the dominant one and uh you're you're the leader and that was very very popular in the united states for for a period of time the 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 alpha the alpha training method i mean i wasn't originally i never imagined that to be part of the story um but the more cognitive scientists that i spoke to in fact i would say when it came when it comes to the, the the cognitive scientists involved with dogs and who focus their interest on dogs every single one of them um was saying to me look you need to mention this because as you say um alpha theory does it, it does seem to be a bit on a downward curve here in the in the uk as well um but it amazes me and it amazes them how often people still refer to it and it's it's kind of a kind of cloud i suppose in the culture that that still exists so i thought it'd be interesting to go um back in time through the story and just work out where that came from where this idea about you need to be the alpha um, you know where that actually comes from and it comes really as a byproduct of Pavlov um, and uh, German dog trainers at the turn of the 20th century um, who hit upon conditioning as a good way to well basically punishment as a good way to get dogs to do things you want them to do so the German army in first in the first world war was just absolutely I mean it was like thousands and thousands of um, dogs trained for all sorts of war purposes including laying cables and finding um, injured soldiers and the like and the you know amazing strides being done in terms of training you know started the first training manuals so conrad most was the colonel conrad most um was the, the 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 best dog trainer of all the most famous german dog trainer who trained all these war dogs wrote a book it was translated into uh, english and it did fine trade it's still in print today actually and uh, you know basically saying this is how you get the best from dogs. You know, they're beasts. We need to make sure we're, um, you know, treating them like be showing them who's who's boss. And that book, um, in well, I suppose was so well read when it came to uh, scientists, the earliest ethologists looking at wild animals, looking at wolves, they kind of have that book in their head that, you know, these are beasts. So um, uh, in the 1940s, um, a guy called Schenkel, who was uh, the first to look at the social dynamics of wolves, um, you know, with an interest in learning more about why dogs are the way they are, studied wolves, noticed this alpha uh, male and female behaviour, you know, fighting to the death, you know, that basically that, you know, this is a life of, of, of blood, I suppose, and published his findings. They were immediately used by the dog training industry to justify, you know, they really are beasts, guys. They really are beasts. Look at the way wolves behave. Dogs are, you know, by extension, wolves. This is the way they are too. You've got to keep on top of them. And about 20 years after that study uh, by Schenkel, looking at wolves, it was quite clearly realised that there was a fundamental error in the methodology. And that was that Schenkel had observed captive wolves in a zoo that were all unrelated to each other so basically wolves 
who don't know each other thrown into a cage together. And, you know, obviously there's going to be bloodshed and, you know, any, I would say pretty much any mammal would behave like that. Humans do when they throw them in prison. Yeah, absolutely. So the sad thing is that, you know, the ship had sailed and everyone was talking about alpha theory. Um, you know, the word alpha was first, you know, in, in this context was first used by Schenkel in that study. And it's taken, I mean, it's so shocking to me that it's, it's still a part of, you know, dog law now, dog culture now. You know, it's still there and it's good that it's going away. But I thought, you know what, I have to put that, I have to, that has to be part of this story as well. Because yeah. again, it's a really interesting example of how, you know, this is about more than just science. It's actually about how science and culture uh, meet and how they work together, I suppose. So I'm glad to hear you saying that you feel like that's on the downwards in, um, in, in North America. And I, I, I think it's a similar case here. Um, but that goes back, you know, I said just now about Oz and how I give him a biscuit to get in the boot. And I, I've had a couple of people, I've, I mentioned that to a couple of other people and, you know, one of them was kind of like, whoa, you know, what a waste of biscuits. You know, you need to show them who's, but they should be doing it because they, you know, they love you and respect you. And it's kind of, it's really complicated. So these ideas are still there. We're still learning and maybe in 50 years, you know, it will change in a different way. But, but as you said, I'm, I'm glad it's, it does seem to be on the downward. Well, my advice to you is, hey, it's just a biscuit, man. If it makes, yeah. <laughs> if it makes you, if it's making you both happy, you know, yeah, do you really need to prove who's boss with it yeah, with, exactly. by, by withholding a biscuit? Um, okay. Look, before we, we have to go here soon, I want to touch on a, a few of the really wonder, wonder dogs. Um, could you tell us a bit about Rico and Betsy and Chaser? What an, what amazing dogs those are. Yeah. So pick, maybe pick one of them. What are just awesome stories those are. So uh, Rico was the first of these wonder dogs that was um, very quickly recognized for its abil ability to learn the, um, basically learn words of objects. And Rico was on a TV show called You Bet and millions of viewers across Europe watching this dog, basically collecting teddies by name. And everyone was cheering, you know, Rico was able to do um, uh, more than a hundred different objects by name. Everyone loved it. And watching at home was two evolutionary psychologists. And they were like, that is really unusual. You know, if you've got chimpanzees doing that, that would be a, that would be on the front of, you know, science or nature. And here was, here was this dog, you know, able to do it. So they got in touch with the owner and they, um, they uh, did tests of their own in kind of controlled situations. And yeah, absolutely. This was a dog that could, could do more than a hundred words for objects it could retrieve you know 100 different objects and then uh after that i think national geographic yeah they did a they did a call out to see whether there was any other dogs that could do the same and there was other dogs most famous was betsy and betsy was able to retrieve a hundred uh, sorry a thousand different objects by name and the only reason that they you know that the, the human companion stopped at a thousand was he was like it just there's no point i haven't got enough time in the day to keep doing this so it could well be that betsy was able to you know would have been able to do even more but the interesting thing as well is that um betsy was able to understand it's kind of it's called one-to-many mapping so in other words betsy was able to understand that that an object could be two things so a, a, an object could be uh, let's say an object, a Pikachu, a Pikachu teddy, that the teddy could be Pikachu. So go and get Pikachu, or it could just be a teddy. So it is a category of uh, Pikachu was, it was in the category of teddy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it's, it's quite she's, complicated. She's you know, able, yeah, she's able to uh, 
to to have more than one thing in her head. It's not just simple object identification. It's this and also some qualifier. Yes, exactly. It's a conceptual understanding of of the object, and um, absolutely fascinating. Now, those dogs are rare, and sadly, you know, <laughs> I don't think Oz, our dog, is ever ever going to get there. Well, that's but just you know, there's amazing right. people. I I can't play cello like Yo Yo Ma either, but I'm glad he I'm glad he's around. True. <laughs> Let's finish up with, uh, I think, the, the, the striking thing to me about the end of your book, which is very powerful. Um, you have a poem in there, and I was wondering if you might read that for us. Do you know which poem I'm referring I, to? I know the poem. Robert Louis Stevenson, do you have it handy? <laughs> okay, no one's ever asked me to do this before. I'm not sure I've got a great reading voice, but here we go. Go for it, man. Love. What is love? A great and aching heart. Wrung hands and silence and a long despair. Life, what is life? Upon a moorland bare, to see love coming and see love depart. Robert Louis Stevenson, love, what is love? Beautiful. And so this fits into the end of your book because you grapple with and come to terms with the L word that for many uh, scientists dealing with dogs, you know, don't like to use that word. They'd rather use the word attachment. And you seem to have come to the point, uh, like Clive Wynn has, mm. that you think that dogs really do love us. Yeah, I've wrestled with the L word, as you say, for for years, and I've always felt quite uncomfortable about it. But I, I tell you what's convinced me, and and it's the breadth of studies now. So when it comes to, as you say, attachment, there is absolutely loads of fantastic evidence um, that we, you know, we can be really confident that dogs are feeling intense emotions like we do when they're with their loving human companions. So that might be fMRI studies, looking at brain scans, if you like, of excited, happy dogs, seeing their owners, um, oxytocin, you know, blood hormone um, levels, they often rise exactly in a predictable way, just like with humans when they see people they love. Dogs have the same a reaction upon seeing us. And just their behaviours as well, their sort of psychology, their strange situation tests, they're called, where you look at how puppies respond when a stranger works, walks into a room, and it's the same as the way human children respond. So that's just three. You know, there are literally, I would say, about 100 studies now that really support that idea that this is real affection, it's real love in the same way that humans feel love for one another. It was a joy talking to you about this wonderful book, Wonder Dog. Uh, I'm so glad you wrote it, and uh, and best of luck with it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to our guest, Jules Howard. You can find his book, Wonder Dog, at most major booksellers. I highly recommend it. And I also want to dedicate this program to our niece, Jennifer, who tirelessly works to find homes for shelter dogs, especially those with injuries and special needs, through the Deserving Pet Rescue Group in my home area of Tehama County in California. To date, Jennifer has found homes for hundreds of deserving dogs, including my own. You can learn more about her work and others at DeservingPetRescue.com. 
Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs>